This reading can be found on page 768. Jeremiah 10, 1 to 16. Hear what the Lord says to you, people of Israel. This is what the Lord says. Do not lean on the ways of the nations or be terrified by the signs in the heavens, though the nations are terrified by them. For the practices of the people are worthless. They cut a tree out of the forest and a craftsman shapes it with his chisel. They adorn it with silver and gold. They fasten it with a hammer and nails so that it will not totter like a scarecrow in a cucumber field. Their idols cannot speak, they must be carried, because they cannot walk. Do not fear them, they can do no harm, nor can they do any good. No one is like you, Lord. You are great, and your name is mighty in power. Who should not fear you, King of nations? This is your due. Among all the wide leaders of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is no one like you. They are all senseless and foolish. They are taught worthless wooden idols, hammered in silver and brought from Tarshish, and hammered and gold from Ufish. What the craftsmen and goldsmith have made is then dressed in blue and purple, all made by skilled workers. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God, the eternal king. When he is angry, the earth trembles. The nations cannot endure his wrath. Tell them this. These gods who do not make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth and from under the heavens. But God has made earth by his power. He founded the world by his wisdom and stretched out the heavens by his understanding. When he thunders the waters in the, in the heavens roar, he makes clouds rise from the ends of the earth. He sends lightning with rain and brings out wind from his storehouses. Everyone is senseless and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is shamed by his idols. The images he makes are a fraud. They have no breath in them. They are worthless, the objects of mockery. When their judgment comes, they will perish. He who is the portion of Jacob is not like this, for he is the maker of all things, including Israel, the people of his inheritance, the Lord God, God Almighty is his name. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God can be found on page 1038. They sailed to the region of the Gerenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, What is your name? Legion, he replied because many demons had gone into him. And they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs, and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, 
They ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of Gerenesis asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with them, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, all those words and thoughts that come from you, will you bless them and make them fruitful? And all those words and thoughts that come not from you, but from our own vanity, will you forgive? Amen. Well, not the most obvious uh, reading from the New Testament for a confirmation at first sight, but actually at second sight, it's very much to the point. Here's the vision. There's this poor man torn apart by all sorts of conflicting desires. I mean, the thing that possessed him is called legion. Huge numbers of things like... uh, Memories, cravings, desires, fears, tearing him to pieces. A great host of them inside. And it's Jesus Christ who comes and inspires fear. Fear in the man because um, in many ways we get used to a life of being possessed by so many contradictory thoughts. And we fear the call to be single-minded and simpler and someone who comes and sits by Jesus Christ, dressed and in his right mind. There's a good deal of fear about leaving the life which is so familiar But Jesus Christ uh, releases him from this host of conflicting passions and desires and cravings. And we see him, as the townspeople arrive, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind. That is the climax of the Christian journey when we have kept company with Jesus Christ, the gift that he gives and only he can give is that we come to that place where we are not torn to pieces by regrets, remorse, fears, cravings. We are single-minded and simple-hearted and we are sane and poised able to live from that place which the Hebrews called the spiritual heart, which was for them somewhere in the vitals, not living from our minds, living in a hectic world, but sane and poised, 
and able to love without distortion because we have kept company with Jesus Christ. But it's something that does inspire fear because we're so used to living the other way. And then we go to this magnificent passage from Jeremiah. It's Jeremiah at his most disdainful. Uh, Jeremiah excoriating the idols. Like a scarecrow in a melon patch, their idols cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot walk. Do not fear them. They can do no harm, nor can they do any good. Magnificent scorn by the prophet Jeremiah for idols. Now, you may not think that this is a major problem in Chester Square. You may think, well, there's not much Moloch worship around here. The number of idols uh, being carried through the streets of this parish um, are hardly numerous. But if we are tempted to reject the idea that idolatry is a serious problem in contemporary Britain, we would be wrong. I went recently on a Sunday to the parish where Mohammed Mbwazi, alias Jahadi John, lived as a schoolboy. Uh, it was very fascinating because that fact excited uh, a very intense debate uh, about how young people, just like those who've made their decision this evening, how young people should be brought up, what sort of relationship they should have to worship and faith. One teacher told me straight, and it was very frank, she said, we leave religion at the school gates. And I imagine, like me, there'll be many here who could easily understand and sympathize with that point of view, since uh, we are exposed almost every day to numerous crimes committed in the name of religion. And indeed, this is one of the ways, one of the many ways, in which the 21st century is so different from the 20th century. In the 20th century, um, the commentariat had decided that the story of God was only going to have one end, and that was relegation to the leisure sector. People were immensely confident that we had come to the consummation of human life, the human project with the arrival of liberal democracy and market economics had reached a plateau. There were dark places in the world which still had to be enlightened, but actually we had reached the climax of the human project. And that was actually the thesis of a very interesting book by an American sage, Francis Fukuyama, he wrote in 1992 and published a book called The End of History, which suggested that the human project had come to this kind of rather cheerful conclusion. It didn't take long, however, for the 21st century to reveal, in the words of a former editor 
of The Economist newspaper that God was back. And so it has proved subsequently. And one could be very sympathetic in view of the crimes committed in the name of religion with a statement like that of the teacher I was speaking to, that we leave religion at the school gates. But every scheme of educating the next generation involves assumptions about the nature of human beings and what is worthwhile about life. There is no such thing as secular neutrality. If ever you hear somebody say that their school practices value-free education, is a neutral sphere, a secular sphere, confute it. It is one of the most implausible myths around. It is certainly true that many schools are based on the assumption that the economy is the only game in town, that fitting young people to be productive units in the economy is the supreme task. Well, whatever you think of it, that is a view about what's worthwhile in life and what the meaning of human life is. It is a faith position. Every single school is a faith school in that it is based on an assumption about what's worthwhile about human life. And the other thing that is wrong with that statement, we leave religion at the school gates, is that when you're facing something satanic, you cannot exorcise the satanic by simply creating a vacuum. As we see from that reading in St. Luke's Gospel, it takes the presence of the Spirit of Jesus Christ to deliver the demoniac from his legion of cravings and passions that are tearing him to pieces. You cannot exorcise the satanic by creating a vacuum. And indeed, it's ridiculous to say that you stop religion at the school gates because it comes in with the pupils, the students, sometimes for good, sometimes for ill. And on a night like this, there are two surprising facts about human life which have to be borne in mind. And the first surprising fact surprising only, of course, to our own time and our own generation, it's perfectly obvious, really, is that everyone worships. Of course, I'm not deluded. I realize that there are people who put atheist on their census returns, but it is only human to shape ourselves, to shape our future, by referring who we are and what we are to something we regard as attractive or fearsome, to ascribe worth, to worship in that way. Human beings are not like the ants who follow the laws of their being. Human beings are shapeshifters. Human beings are always at work referring themselves to something or someone they regard as attractive or fearsome. And in this sense, every human being is a worshipper. Most often, of course, these objects of worship, and this is where we come back to Jeremiah, 
and the perennial danger of idolatry. Most often, of course, these some things are an idea. People compete for wealth, power, glamour, status. These things have a powerful influence, shaping our waking moment, shaping our lives, shaping our life strategy. The ancient Greeks, of course, were sensible enough to clothe these ideas in attractive human forms. Uh, and very often they led to what must have been very satisfying religious practices. There was Hercules for pimply adolescence. And for the readers of Vogue, there was Aphrodite. So there are all sorts of ways in the history of religion that people have clothed ideas in attractive dress. Sometimes, of course, today, it is the cult of celebrity. It is these ideas clothed in celebrity personages and their lifestyles. Celebrities, as we know, are people who are well-known for their well-knownness. But their function in our culture is much more profound than that, because they are once again clothing these admirable ideas. And there's another truth. In some cases, this universal disposition to worship takes a more sinister form. Why is idolatry so constantly denounced by the prophets and not least by the prophet Jeremiah? What is idolatry? It's very simple. The idea is making God in your own image. The Bible starts with the only God who exists making us in his image, but idolatry is reversing the process and making a God in my own image. It is constantly denounced by all the prophets. And commonly, it takes the form of projecting, projecting a part of ourselves into the middle distance, naming it God, and then conducting some sort of interior conversation with the God we have created. And most dangerously, and in our own world, very typically, the bruised and humiliated ego surreptitiously reascends to worship some projection of its own lust for power, its own rage, its own anger. And that form of idolatry, creating a god out of projections of our own anger and our own rage, you can see it, yes, let's name it. You can see it in IS. You can see it tragically in the lives of so many young people who are tempted in that direction. One of the, one of the ways in which it um, seems to me that we lack wisdom is that so many people in political life are very ready to say, of course, this has got nothing to do with religion, just as they used to say in Northern Ireland, nothing to do with religion. Well, if by that you mean that Jesus Christ in his teaching, the Prince of Peace, 
could never be used as an excuse for that sort of behavior. Well, that's obviously true. But because the disposition to worship is so fundamental to human life, you run great dangers by pretending it's really only a response to poverty or, uh, or disadvantage. You've got to take the spiritual and religious aspect seriously. It is not reducible to anything else, because for all of us, there is this disposition to worship. And if it is directed to the wrong ends, and in particular, if it is idolatrous, meaning that we have created our own God to dialogue with and to commune with, not to sit at the feet of Jesus Christ, sane and poised and in our right mind and properly dressed, but actually in conversation with some projection of ourselves, then the result is terrifying. It's so serious because of the second surprising fact about the spiritual life, which is again so obvious, but somehow so many people have missed it. Not only does everybody worship, but a certain kind of prayer is always answered. And the prayer is this. You turn into the God you worship. And that's why it was so important to hear these candidates say in their own person and their own names and their own words, I turn to Jesus Christ because we turn into the God we worship. The money grabbers and those who are generous grow into what they worship. So at a confirmation, the question of which God we are worshiping is a crucial one, because make no mistake about it, you are, I am. And that's why I find an evening like this so thrilling, so liberating, because these candidates have decided they're on their way to becoming single-minded, sitting at the feet of Jesus Christ, sane and poised, able to love without distortion, because they have declared for the God we see in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, it says in the New Testament, is the very icon of God. He is the likeness of God. God so loved the world that he was generous. He gave himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the human face of God. He is God's plan embodied in flesh and blood. Love for God is, of course, not so much an emotion which ebbs and flows. You can't command people to have that kind of uh, warm glow inside them. Love for God, which we are commanded to practice, is self-giving. It is social love. And Jesus, Jesus Christ's way of self-giving love is revealed in all its abyssal depth on the cross as strange good news for the human race, always tempted to idolatry, always tempted to make a God in their own image, 
But here is the true and living God, your mighty God, whose human face we see in Jesus Christ, whose love consists in self-giving, in social love. It is very natural, of course, to take the path of idolatry, to take the path of bigging ourselves up by creating our own God to refer to, to shape our futures and ourselves. Jesus Christ taught. Think of that great hymn in the letter to the Christians of Philippi. Jesus Christ taught that the very first step in becoming a human being after his image and likeness is to refuse to be a little God. He came as a servant. And so if we are to follow the way of self-giving, social love, we must go down. And this service, of course, is but the completion of the entry into full Christian life that entry which, be, which, which began with the baptism of these candidates, baptism which they have all affirmed that they have undergone. Jesus Christ taught that the first step in becoming a human being is to refuse to be a little God. He went down to the river Jordan to accept baptism at the hands of John. I've actually just been to the site in Bethany beyond Jordan. I had forgotten, but I was forcibly reminded standing there by the river Jordan. Jesus was baptized at the lowest point on earth, 1,300 feet below sea level. No one can enter the kingdom of God except by water and the Spirit which leads us into a way of humility, being close to the earth, close to clarity of sight. The only way is not to make a God in our own image, but to cultivate, beloved, the beginner's mind and to receive the Spirit of God who is continually at work giving himself away. And so I pray that you will remember this night and those two rather surprising readings from Holy Scripture. The man who's liberated from the lacerating legion of drives and impulses inside him and ends by sitting at the feet of Jesus Christ, clothed and in his right mind, sane and poised, able to love without distortion. And also remember the prophet Jeremiah and his magnificent disdain, his disdain for the gods that we create in our own image. You're beginning a spiritual adventure. None of us can tell where it will lead you. But I am convinced of one thing. If you keep company with Jesus Christ, as you have promised to do this evening, you will be a blessing to the world and you will know the joy that comes as well as the suffering to all who sincerely and with singleness of heart 
follow him and become a part of his body. And to Jesus Christ be the glory in this church, now and forever. Amen.